It seems that springtime is a lousy season for nuclear power plants. The worst accidents seem to have happened in the spring. On a chilly March day with two reactors operating at full power to deliver 2,200 megawatts of electricity to the community, workers there set off a sequence of events that would result in a near meltdown of the Unit 1 and Unit 2 reactor cores. In the bowels of the plant, there was an electrical cable room called a cable spreading room. It's designed to separate the essential electrical cables for the plant's reactors. Those cables provided electrical lifeblood of the reactors and were key to controlling them. That room was the heart and brain of the reactors. On this March day, two construction workers were trying to seal air leaks between the reactor building and a turbine building. These buildings had to be airtight. Otherwise, radiation could escape from one to the other and possibly out to the environment and the people. They were using polyurethane foam material for this purpose and a candle to determine whether the leaks had been successfully plugged. Any escaping air would move the flame on the candle, telling them that their work was not yet done. All was going according to plan until one of the workers placed the candle too close to the foam rubber. The foam rubber quickly burst into flames. The fire disabled critical systems, including the entire emergency core cooling system of the reactor unit one. Soon it would be within an hour of meltdown. Maybe you think I'm describing the start of the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, but this series of events occurred a lot closer to home. These things happened at the Browns Ferry nuclear plant in Alabama in 1975. 35 years, 11 months, and 18 days before Fukushima. The parallels between the two accidents are both interesting and enlightening. To complete your sense of the timeline, the Browns Ferry disaster occurred little more than four years before the Three Mile Island accident in March of 79, and 11 years before the Chernobyl accident in April of 86. See what I mean about springtime? Years after the Browns Ferry fire, I went to work at that plant and found myself among some of the operators who had experienced the events firsthand. I talk a little bit about my conversations with them and what I learned from them in my book, Station Blackout. But because the book is primarily about the Fukushima disaster and its aftermath, I touched upon the lessons and parallels of Browns Ferry only briefly. And it is a story that deserves fuller attention. I'm very pleased to share it in more detail now, along with my promise to dedicate future podcasts to the stories of the heroic Fukushima operators whose actions saved their plant and probably their country. Back to Browns Ferry, the cable spreading room where the fire began is located just below the plant's control room. There's a wall penetration, a hole basically, between the turbine building, referred as the non-safety side, and the reactor building, the safety side, that houses the reactor and its safety systems. The electrical cables for the safety systems run through this hole, but it is critical that there be no airflow between the two buildings. As I said earlier, any leak could potentially allow radioactive substance to flow from the reactor building into the turbine building and ultimately out to the environment, which is why the sealing of any possible leaks is a critical task. On that March day, working carefully as he was trained to do, one of the workers tore off two pieces of foam sheeting and jammed them into the hole. Not fully effective as it turns out. When he held the lit candle nearby to check his work, the draft between the two buildings quickly sucked the flame towards the flammable foam. 
As the foam started to smolder and glow, the other worker quickly handed the man a flashlight, which he used to try to knock out the fire. No luck. Next, he tried to smother the fire by stuffing rags into the hole. That didn't work either. Increasingly desperate, the two workers pulled out the rags and one of them grabbed a fire extinguisher, quickly aiming a strong blast of CO2 right through the hole into the reactor building. Surely, this would do the trick, right? Wrong. The fire continued to spread. He then tried a dry chemical extinguisher, and then another. Neither put out the fire, which was now galloping through the polyurethane foam. In fact, the CO2 extinguisher had just pushed the flames further into the hole, and the chemical extinguisher had a blowtorch effect, causing the fire to literally roar. Although the dry chemicals did briefly douse the flames, they simply reignited. The worker should have activated a fire alarm, even before attempting to douse the flames themselves. Instead, they struggled to put out the fire for about 15 minutes, to no avail. Only then, in a panic, did they run to a plant guard to tell him that the fire had broken out. He, in turn, violated protocol by calling the shift engineer's office rather than sounding an alarm. The shift engineer called the reactor operator in the control room, and only then was the fire alarm sounded. I shudder to think what would have happened if the shift engineer had been away from his office on the construction side of the plant, where he'd have no direct line of communications to the control room. Even after the fire alarm sounded, the operators didn't consider it necessary to shut down the plant, and the reactors continued to operate. 45 minutes after the fire alarm sounded, the Unit 1 reactor operator discovered that all of his emergency pumps had been activated automatically. This would normally occur as a result of a change in the reactor's water level. But the reactor was operating normally, and the water level was unchanged. What was going on, he thought. Lights on the control panels began randomly glowing, brightening, dimming, and then going out. Alarms were sounding. At one point, smoke began pouring from the control boards. On one emergency panel, light bulb sockets began to pop, and the light bulb shattered. Thinking this was just part of some malfunction of the emergency system, the operator tried to shut it down, but it simply restarted on its own, reactivating the pumps and offering up more flashing lights, buzzers, and smoke. After 10 minutes, the reality began to sink in. Maybe the reactor should be shut down, he thought. But before the reactor operator could initiate this action, the power in the Unit 1 reactor began to drop precipitously, and the reactor's cooling water pumps quit. At that point, 55 minutes after the fire had started in the cable spreading room, the operator shut down the reactor. As a result of this chain of events, all control power and electrical power for the reactors was lost. All safety equipment for Unit 1 was lost, along with all systems that protected the core, except for one small pump, and it was not enough to keep the core cold. So that's what was happening in Unit 1, but what about Unit 2? On the Unit 2 side of the control room, warning lights were also going off. Panel lights were flashing and changing color. Backup electrical power to the emergency system had failed. Soon, just as in Unit 1, reactor power began inexplicably decreasing. And just as in Unit 1, the operator didn't immediately shut down the plant. Back in Unit 1, things were not going well. One hour and 15 minutes into the accident, all the nuclear instrumentation had been lost. So the operator had no way of knowing 
what was happening inside the reactor. How could he cool the core with just that one small pump? He had to figure out a way to get more water into the core. He decided to open some valves to depressurize the reactor. He hoped that this action would allow for low pressure systems to deliver water for the reactor. The question was, were these low pressure systems available? By the time the operator located one working low pressure pump that could deliver an adequate supply of water to the reactor, the reactor water level had dropped perilously low to just 48 inches above the core. For the moment, the Unit 1 reactor was under control, but for how long? Unit 2 avoided a meltdown by a similarly thin margin. Key safety systems, nuclear instrumentation, and communications failed. The operators for Unit 2 were becoming blind without this information. The room was filling with smoke. Alarms were blaring in their ears. They were becoming blind just as the operators were on Unit 1. The operators were able to depressurize the reactor and use low pressure systems to cool the core, thus narrowly averting a meltdown. Back at the site of the fire, the plant fire brigade was assembled and determined to get into the reactor building and attack the fire from the other side of the hole. But this was not easily done. The loss of electricity had plunged the interior of the reactor building into darkness and it was filled with dense, thick smoke. They needed breathing apparatus to survive inside and they were woefully under-equipped in that department. And after several heroic attempts to get in, the firefighters gave up. In the turbine building, one firefighter tried to turn on a CO2 fire suppression system and flood the entire spreading room, only to find that the CO2 system had purposely been disabled to prevent spraying construction workers with CO2 while they worked. The spreader room was crowded and difficult to navigate under the best of circumstances, but when wearing an air pack and mask and carrying a fire extinguisher, it was nearly impossible for the firefighters. Firefighters tried crawling under the cables, but their air packs were too cumbersome. They took them off and slid them along ahead of themselves. In the process, the nozzle of one of the extinguishers broke off, making a horrific noise and making the extinguisher useless. Air packs were in short supply and not all of them worked. Some included face masks and some of them didn't, and others were not fully charged. Of course, even when charged, they could only be used for a limited amount of time. One firefighter tried to use a manual override to start the flow of CO2, but discovered that a metal construction plate had been installed over the handle. Unable to locate a simple screwdriver to remove the plate, he couldn't get this done. It would later be discovered that nearly all manual CO2 controls in the plant had been similarly obstructed. The firefighter finally restored power to the CO2 system, but when they deployed it, the result was simply to drive heavy black smoke up into the control room, choking the operators, making it even more difficult to control the reactors. The operators and others in the control room began choking and coughing up smoke. It was evident that they'd soon have to evacuate unless they could get the control room ventilated. Firefighters shut off the CO2 system to stop the influx of smoke and opened the control room doors, but the fire burnt on. Two firefighters grabbed flashlights and went up into the spreader room to try again to extinguish the fire, but the flashlights couldn't penetrate the thick black smoke. On their way to the spreader room, they encountered some 12 workers in or near the room who'd been overcome by the CO2 and were close to death. They would need to be rescued immediately and they were by the already overburdened firefighters. 
By this point, the rubber insulation around the cable was burning, producing dense black smoke and sickening fumes and causing the, those fighting the fire to vomit repeatedly. Back in the reactor building, operators put on breathing equipment and made three attempts to open valves to cool the reactors. But their air packs provided only 18 minutes of air, not enough time to get the job done and get back to safety. After their third attempt, frustrated and unable to recharge the air packs, they went back to the control room. They'd need better equipment if they were to succeed at their task. For another six hours, electrical cables continued to burn. The Athens, Alabama Fire Department had been on the scene since about 1.30 p.m., an hour and a half after the fire began. But most of the firefighting was still being carried out by the plant fire brigade. The local fire chief didn't believe the fire was electrical in nature and wanted to douse it with water rather than using the CO2 or dry chemicals. In his view, the hot wires needed to cool, and this could only be done with water. But the Tennessee Valley Authority, the organization that ran the plant, continued to insist that the fire was in fact electrical, and they had a policy of not putting water on an electrical fire to avoid electrocution of firefighters. The fire chief was frustrated. Plant employees were using B and C types of fire extinguishers to put out what he knew was a type A fire. Around 6 p.m., he again suggested the use of water, and the plant superintendent finally agreed. As a result, the Athens Fire Department put out the fire in about 20 minutes, a fire that had burnt for hours and nearly melted down two reactors. Concerns about reactor pressure increasing and stopping the low pressure water flow to the reactor core suddenly appeared on Unit 1. Under these conditions, with increasing pressure and the loss of water, meltdown could begin in as little as a few hours. Reactor pressure mounted higher and higher. How could they depressurize the reactor? Then one of the shift engineers remembered that a system had been installed during construction that would allow for the depressurization of the reactor by using nitrogen in lieu of the failed air systems. The operators plunged back into the smoke-filled reactor building to find the nitrogen valves and align them so that the reactor could be depressurized. Finally, at about 9.50 p.m., the operators began to depressurize the reactor. Normal shutdown of the reactor was finally accomplished at 4 a.m. The tragedy of the Browns Ferry fire was over, with dozens treated for smoke inhalation, but no loss of life. Other emergency system failures plagued the plant in the wake of the disaster. After nightfall, aircraft warning lights on the 600-foot plant stack went out, leaving it vulnerable to an aircraft collision. Someone tried to notify the security officers of, of this situation by public telephone, but couldn't reach them. They then called the State Environments Emergency Center and explained the condition, only to be told to contact the FAA so that aircraft might be warned. That was a nonsensical action. The computer printer recording the events ran out of tape at 4.30 p.m. and wasn't replaced until 2 p.m. the following day. Because of that, much of what happened moment to moment could only be reconstructed anecdotally after the fact. Similarly, the tape recorders used to record phone calls were not fully functional, and only partial transcripts were taken. Some of the calls that were recorded exposed that senior managers were making light of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's decision to come and investigate the fire. Some even made fun of the investigators themselves. Plant leaders were recorded 
telling the public affairs officer at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that the public news media would probably, quote, drive you out of your mind, unquote. He had asked if the NRC had issued a press release. They had issued one at 4.30 p.m. that day, four and a half hours after the fire. But the upshot of the press release was that the situation could have been a hell of a lot worse. Not a meaningful press release. Emergency procedures for the reactors were problematic as well. Even though there had been previous fires at the plant, many employees didn't know how to call in an alarm, nor had they been trained in emergency procedures. When the word of the fire had spread throughout the plant, many of the employees had gone to the control room, which added to the chaos of the situation. In a room meant to hold six people, suddenly there were 50 to 75, and few of them were actually helping. After the fire, there was much discussion about why flammable foam had been used to fix the leaks in the first place. The workers themselves knew that the foam was flammable, and they'd been told as much by an electrical engineer. Some senior managers admitted that they knew the foam was flammable, but had never dreamed anybody would use a candle to test it. Others said they knew about the candles, but had no idea the foam was flammable. The real irony of the Browns Ferry fire was that two days earlier, Another engineer had put out a similar fire. The night shift engineers and the assistant engineers all met to discuss it. They had concluded that the candle procedure should no longer be used. However, no follow-up action was taken. It's easy to conclude that it wasn't a matter of whether there would be a significant fire at Browns Ferry, but when. In order to learn from a terrible circumstance such as the Browns Ferry fire, it's important to look not only at the events themselves, but at the reaction to the events. How was the emergency handled as it unfolded? Were there proper safety protocols in place? Were they understood and followed? At Browns Ferry on that day, the environmental radiation monitors on Unit 1 were lost almost immediately, and those on Unit 2 were not functioning from 2 p.m. until 9 p.m. Had there been a release of radiation, the operators would not have been able to gauge the severity of the release. They would not have been able to determine the proper evacuation protocol for the public to keep people safe from the radioactive exposure. Both the NRC and the plant's operator, federal government's Tennessee Valley Authority, insisted that no radiation release had occurred, but there were continuing difficulties in getting air samples to verify this. As the fire raged on, officials tried to get samples from the meteorological tower at the plant, but the smoke was too thick to allow it. Effective sampling of air finally began at 4.45 p.m. in Athens, 10 miles northeast of the plant. No samples were available from the area southeast of the plant, which was the direction in which the wind was blowing at the time of the fire. Had there been a radiation release, it would have moved in that direction, towards Decatur, Alabama. Had the accident resulted in a core meltdown, much of the surrounding population would have had to evacuate. Shockingly, throughout the course of the event, no one ever notified the Civil Defense Coordinator for Limestone County. He didn't even hear about the fire until March 24th, two days after it had been put out. The Limestone County Sheriff wasn't notified either, but even if he had been notified, he wouldn't have known what to do. He had never been given a copy of the emergency evacuation plan. The Sheriff of Morgan County didn't hear about the fire until about four hours after it started, but he was advised to keep quiet about it to avoid public panic. No official notification was made to the state of Alabama Highway Patrol or public health department. Other relevant state agencies would say later that they didn't have up-to-date copies of the emergency plan. 
In the months that followed the Browns Ferry fire, the NRC headquarters in Washington remained silent about it. The press release said that the two reactors had been safely shut down and cooled during the fire, downplaying the event. NRC inspectors themselves reported there had been a redundant cooling system available during the cooldown. They said certain critical instrumentation, such as that monitoring the reactor water levels, temperature and pressure within the reactors had continued to function, and both that plants had been safely shut down. They also said that on Unit 1, emergency core cooling systems had been activated and supplied water to the reactor. Although a loss of cooling accident never occurred, those systems, they insisted, had been shut off to prevent overfilling of the reactor, none of which factually represented the event. None of it was accurate. I arrived at Browns Ferry a few years later as a plant operator. Many of my colleagues, those who trained, supervised, and managed me, had actually fought the fire. They shared their stories of the fire with me, and I learned many lessons from them. At one point, I asked an operator who had been in the control room that day, who was known in the official report as Operator M, whose real name was Gary McChristian, whether he'd been frightened during the accident. Well, he said, you know, they're operating with an air mask on, with light bulbs popping out of their sockets, and heavy, dense smoke is coming in from the control board and filling the room. Sure, there was a lot to deal with and a lot of fear, but I didn't really get concerned until they called and told me that the spreader room ceiling was caving in. The concrete was spalding. You have to understand, that ceiling was the control room floor. At that point, I got a little worried. Gary was a great operator as well as a great friend and mentor. On that day, concerned or not, he was a hero. The operators at Browns Ferry were every bit as heroic as the ones I would later encounter at Fukushima. On that note, let's skip ahead 35 plus years for a moment. After reflecting on these two accidents, my question is, in all that time between Browns Ferry and Fukushima over 35 years, did we really learn anything? The operators of Fukushima too faced a situation where they had to devise alternate means to cool the reactors. As I detail in the book, a man named Yoshida, the site vice president, fortunately he knew of an alternate fire protection connection that would allow water into the reactor core, much as the operators at Browns Ferry had made the nitrogen connection to reduce pressure. In both situations, heroic actions under the most challenging conditions saved the day. As we explore Fukushima in future podcasts, the parallels between the two accidents will become clear and enlightening. Thankfully, the American nuclear industry has learned from both devastating situations. The industry is exponentially safer today because of what we learned from the heroes of Browns Ferry and Fukushima. These were operators who did the best that they could with what they were given. Neither gave in to fear or panic, and neither gave up until they prevailed over the nuclear disaster. My job as a nuclear safety consultant is to help ensure that we never need that kind of heroic action again. It may sound strange, but I would be very happy to wake up in a world without the need for nuclear heroes.